If we haven't met before, my name's Christian Smith. I'm our director of pastoral ministries, and it's a pleasure to be able to spend uh, a few moments with you today on this uh, really great topic. So ultimately, we're discussing how we can develop a vision for our futures, but not just the future that we want or desire, but ultimately the future that God has for us, the dream that God has for us, and how we can live out that fulfilling God-dreamed future. Uh, Pastor Terry set out our course last week uh, while talking about how it's essential to achieve our futures, uh, to, to know Jesus better. Jesus is the source of life, and he has to be the source of our desires and our dreams for the future. We have an example in Jesus of how to seek out our God-inspired future, because when Jesus incarnated in human flesh, he took on, in a sense, the limitedness, the limited nature of humanness. This is a lot to think about, and if you want to dig into it more, make sure you listen to last week's message. But just again, to recap it, to give a little bit of framing here to what we'll be talking about, Jesus was and is God and has a divine nature, but he also truly is human and has a human nature. And in his human nature, he took on the limitedness of humanity, which made him have to rely on the vision and guidance of the Father in order to achieve the future and the plan that was set out for him. Just as Jesus needed to know the Father in order to grow into what he was supposed to be, who he was supposed to be, into his future, so we also can rely on Jesus to look at him as our example, to lean on him, so that we can have a vision for our future and be empowered by his spirit to go and to achieve it. So uh, we're, we're mimicking Jesus' example of practicing spiritual disciplines or what we, would, we could call spiritual habits in order to develop his relationship with the Father. Spiritual habits are things like prayer and fasting, which Pastor talked about last week, scripture study, uh, meditation, and much more. These, uh, these spiritual habits when they're empowered by the Spirit of God within us, can help us develop a vision of Jesus, the plan that he has for us, and how we can get there. Um, so I'm sure that many of us have tried to embark on journeys of practicing spiritual disciplines or have at least kind of comp, comp, uh, contemplated doing so and to, to, to establish prayer regiments or to try and fast and so on and so forth. But I know that all of us experience times in our life where things get in the way, right? Where, where we're trying to do something, but something pops up and it keeps us from practicing this discipline, this habit that will actually help us to grow in intimacy with Jesus. So I believe that one of the greatest deterrents to knowing Christ and, his, and the future that he has for us is distraction. I think this is very self-evident. But how many times do you sit down in the morning to pray, and then you get a push notification on your cell phone, and whatever the Bible was saying was super confusing, and I don't understand what any of it means. But I can definitely understand the text my friend just sent me, and this makes me, uh, you know, it kind of simplifies my mind, it feels like. Or, you know, it's nighttime, and you know that you should be spending time doing something God's called you to do. 
but instead you decide to spend time watching television because it seems a lot easier and takes you away from the things that you have to do. Or you have people who are constantly asking you to do things, and you say yes and yes and yes and yes. And then all of a sudden you realize that your whole schedule is busy. And when you meet people and you introduce yourself, you say, hi, my name's Busy. I mean, my name's... Right? Whenever we meet people today, it's like, oh, how are you doing? What do you say? I'm good, but I've been busy. Right? That's like, but, but it's not just something we say. It's like a badge of honor. Because if you aren't busy, then you're lazy. So this is, this is such a, a natural rhythm in our lives of, of having so many things to do, what I would call distractions, that can keep us from sitting down and praying in the morning, from practicing the disciplines. Um, I was uh, just reading this book the other day uh, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's a great book. And it talks about uh, kind of the distracted nature that, that we have in our contemporary society. Um, for instance... The author writes, cue a terrifying trend. Our attention span is dropping with each passing year. In 2000, before the digital revolution, our attention span was 12 seconds. So it's not exactly like we had a lot of wiggle room. But since then, it's dropped to 8 seconds. To put things in perspective, a goldfish has an attention span of 9 seconds. My goldfish named Floyd has a longer attention span than I do. Yes, that's right, we're losing to goldfish. The fact is, is that uh, a lot of society is putting these distractions in front of us, uh, willingly. Uh, the, uh, the, for instance, the, one of the founders uh, of Facebook, the first president, Sean Parker, who if you ever saw uh, that movie about the founding of Facebook, he was Justin Timberlake. Um, he, now, he now has some issues or some critiques of, of, of social media and, and what it's, uh, the, the cultural climate and what it's done to our attention. Uh, one thing he says is, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into, the, into building these applications, uh, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. That was the goal. I read a quote recently, too, from John Lehman of Lehman Brothers back in the day. And it was, we need to create a cultural climate in order to make money where we're eliciting desires and not fulfilling needs, to where we can cultivate desires so that we want more stuff and want more stuff, or spend time doing this, or, or we get a, a concept of, of social status in our minds, so we go after that social status. Now, it's important to note that none of these things are necessarily bad, right? Social media is not bad. Social media, Facebook's done wonderful things for connecting people and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes when they become distractions, they can become bad things for us that keep us from uh, enacting, from living out, from moving towards the future that God has set out for us. I believe that an issue for a lot of us, and I completely throw myself in this camp wholeheartedly, um, uh, is that... It's not that we, we, we lack a, a desire to grow in our life with God. Or a, a, we, we don't lack a desire to have spiritual habits or rhythms. We want to. It's just that we're too distracted to actually engage in them. Oftentimes we think of it as a, 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 as a matter of desire or, or and I typically think of it as a matter of intellectual issues where people just don't want to follow God. I think people want to find meaning and purpose and spirituality I was just reading this, this story of this guy who, uh, he was talking about how he lost his faith and stopped following Jesus. And he was like a blog post or something like this. And he listed out like the 10 books that, that influenced him 
to stop following Jesus. And so he lists out the 10 books, and then at the end of it, he says, I hope one day I have enough time to read the 10 books. In his journey, his trek to figure out Jesus and what he believed and didn't believe, he didn't even have time. He was too distracted to actually do the research. He had a desire to figure it out, but he was too distracted to actually go about the appropriate process. So I think that these, these distractions around us keep us from living out the future that Jesus has for us. A kind of a working definition of distraction here, I would say, that it's an unnecessary desire that leads us to expend unnecessary energy in chasing whatever that thing might be. It's an unnecessary desire. It's not necessarily something that is bad in itself. It's just something that is unnecessary in the scope and schema of God's plan for our lives. When you end up having a whole bunch of unnecessary desires, you end up spend, expending unnecessary energy going after them. And so many different paths and options open up before you that either, I think two things happen. One, you have so many places to go and so many options that you never actually go anywhere. Or two, you end up taking the wrong distraction all the way down the path and you end up looking around and wondering, where am I and what am I doing here? This is not the place of fulfillment. This is not the place of purpose. What truly happens to me all the time in the office, especially if I have like really, really busy seasons and I have a lot of stuff to do, um, is like I, I get very frenetic. Like you guys see how much I, well, I walk around the stage, imagine it's like times 20 in the office though with all the things I have to do. And uh, I, I, I don't know if I've ever told anyone on the staff team this, but when I'm walking around the office and I have a lot of stuff to do, um, if there's like a hallway where no one's there, uh, instead of walking down the hallway, I'll just sprint down the hallway in a quick sprint to get to the door, and then I stop, and then I calmly open the door and walk in. I am very settled. I know what I'm doing. And then I walk in, and I always, always, always forget why I've entered the room. <laughs> Has that ever happened to any of you? I'm only 27. I understand it happening to some other pastors on our staff who are less young and spry, but it happens to me as well. We end up in places and we don't know why we're there. We don't have the purpose, the reason, the vision for why we should be in that place. Distractions keep us from keeping a focus on the future that God has for us and leads us to places that we shouldn't be. The antidote, I believe, to distraction is something called simplification. Simplification. The spiritual discipline that, that I hope to talk about today and encourage us towards is the spiritual discipline of simplicity. This might seem, uh, I don't know, random. Maybe it's something you've heard of or maybe it's something you've not heard of. But simplicity has a longstanding tradition amongst the lists of, of the major spiritual disciplines in the Christian faith. We can describe simplicity as the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. That's from Pastor Joshua Becker. Or we can describe it as an inward reality that can be seen in an outward lifestyle of choosing to leverage time, money, talents, and possessions towards what matters most. Simplicity does away with the superfluous distractions in our lives by focusing our desire on God alone and what he has for us. In simplicity, we look at the distraction, 
the, the many opportunities and paths and way we can go, the things that are always calling after your attention. And it simplifies our focus, I want to emphasize, in two ways. We can develop an inner simplicity where, where internally it's as if there's a peace or a serenity in the focus on God and God alone. We can cultivate this within us, and it leads towards an outer simplicity in our lives. Once we do this, we focus on God himself and remove all the superfluous things that are not of God. Now, uh, there's a lot in Scripture about simplifying our lives and eliminating any desires um, or distractions that lead us down the wrong path. A lot of this scripture that I'm just going to read through a quick list here uh, can be about physical things or treasures or money. Now, the point of this isn't going to be money as I unpack it, but the point is that there are things that can distract us, and money can be one of the biggest things. The root of all evil. Money is not evil in itself, but it can lead towards unnecessary desires, or we chase money as a distraction, and then once we get it, we use it to get other things to distract us as well, and then we need more, etc., etc. Money isn't the point, but it's a great example of something that can distract us. For instance, in the story of the rich young ruler who approaches Jesus asking how to inherit eternal life, Christ tells him to sell all of his possessions. In Luke 12, Jesus says, Take heed and beware of all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He counseled people who came seeking God. Again, Luke 12, sell your possessions and give alms. Provide yourselves with purses that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. He tells the parable of a farmer who is hoarding his possessions, who we probably would have thought was being prudent, who is being smart, but Jesus instead calls him a fool. James says to early Christians, you desire and do not have, so you kill, and you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. Now again, this is not about money itself, but what God is telling us is that there are things in our lives that take the attention of our minds. It takes the attention of our hearts, and we must eliminate, get rid of, and abandon all that keeps us from focusing on one thing, God and God alone. We can look around at our lives, and my guess is that all of us know of some things, or if we take a breath and stop going all about the place with all of our busyness and hurriedness, that if we stop, we can realize the things that take the most attention in our lives. And if that thing is not God and God alone, then you ruthlessly eliminate that thing. And that can sound extreme, but I think what Scripture is calling us to, it's not prescriptively saying we all should sell all of our possessions, right? Jesus had possessions. In fact, Jesus, uh, I've heard people say that we, we, we might sometimes overemphasize his poverty. He worked like a normal job, like a carpenter. Like he seemed to have possessions provided for him. He had patrons who were paying for him to go and to, and to walk around and, with, with his disciples and not have to work. He had so many lavish dinners with wine and food that people called him a glutton and a drunkard. When he died on the cross, uh, the soldiers were fighting after his clothing, meaning it was probably something expensive, and it talks about uh, the seeming in it, which meant it probably it might have been a nice piece of clothing. So not that Jesus was rich or something, though he certainly could have been, but the fact is that the, 
The point is not possessions. Jesus isn't saying, get rid, each one of us, get rid of, get, get rid of our possessions. But he's saying, each one of you, what does your heart desire most? And it, if it is not following me, then get rid of it. Abandon it. Push it away. Give your life to me and to me alone. I love um, the story Pastor Terry referenced last week of Martha and Mary that I think really exemplifies this point well, where Jesus is going to a home and he has uh, 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 to, to meet with his disciples and to teach, and there's an interesting interaction here. Um, it reads in Luke 10, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted, everyone say distracted, distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, I'm guessing that's how he said it. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The pastor spoke on this last week, so again, I, I won't belabor the point, but, but to sit at the feet of Jesus meant to be like an apprentice under a rabbi or a teacher. And so as Mary sat there, she was putting the teaching of Jesus, focus on him first, and Martha... Martha was doing good things. She's preparing the house, right? She's, she's, she's trying to provide for people. But what Jesus sees in his infinite wisdom and capacity to, to look beyond the facade of who we are and, and into the depths of our heart and mind and soul is that Jesus knew that for Martha there were many concerns, but for Mary there was only one sitting at the feet of Jesus. Sitting at the feet of Jesus has to be the simple and singular focus of our lives. Being an apprentice of Jesus, we could put this in different ways, in terms of glorifying God, uh, doing his work, uh, entering into a deeper relationship with him. But ultimately, sitting at the feet of Jesus and looking at him and growing in him has to be the simple and singular focus of our lives. But just as Martha did, we all respond, and as do I respond, with the reality of there are so many things to do. Still, as Martha said, right? There's, in reality, literally in life, there's still a lot of things to do, right? You have your finances. You have to raise your kids. You have to go to work to make money. You have to uh, rest. There's entertainment. It's not bad, and we want to engage in those kinds of things. So how do we, how do we, Simply focus and singularly focus on Christ and sit has at his feet amidst all of the craziness and things that we have to do. Well, we first have to understand that simplifying your life so that you're only sitting at the feet of Jesus does not mean that we won't be busy. It means that all of our busyness will only be about God's business. See, Jesus was busy. Jesus had crowds of people that were chasing after him, wanted him to heal them. Jesus was doing a whole bunch of work. He's traveling all over the place. He had to work to make money early in his life. He had to work to get patrons later in his life. Imagine the fundraising and how much time that can cost. He had to have someone take care of his money, Judas, 
didn't work out very well, pick your accountant wisely. That's one takeaway for today. He was going to die for the world. Jesus was super busy, right? Jesus had a bunch of stuff to do, but all of his stuff was the Father's stuff. When all of our stuff is seen as God's, and when we get rid of everything in our lives that is not God's, then our life simply becomes about one thing. See, the discipline of simplicity is not about having less. It's about having more of the right stuff more of the right things, is that we have to begin to look at the disparate, part, disparate parts of our lives, of work and finance and family and fun, all to be a part of a singular whole, which is sitting at the feet of Jesus. When we do this, we are given more life. We have to give up the entirety of our lives, just like the rich young ruler. Give up everything. Basically, give up your life. We have to give up everything to Jesus, and when we do that, then we will gain the fullness of life that comes through Jesus. I love Mark 8. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, and the Gospels will save it. It's almost as if there's like a filter of everything in our life. We all have all of our concerns of our life. And it's like Jesus is this little filter and we have to push everything through this filter, let it come out on the other side and purify it according to the desires of the Father so that he can look at your finances and say, how can I make this be purified by sitting at the feet of Jesus? And it comes out on the other side and our entire life has become this focus, this locus of meaning simplified on one thing, the Father. So, a lot of this can possibly still seem ambiguous, and I'll take your silence as so. No, I'm just kidding. When I graduated from college, I, I wanted to kind of unpack all of this and figure out how I could live in patterns of simplicity, and I, I read Walden by Thoreau. I don't know if any of you have done that, uh, but it's really a beautiful portrait of kind of simple living. Uh, and so, I, I started to kind of chart this out, and I literally did this for myself. This is how we typically organize our lives, right? Our, our kind of life is this big circle, this big hole, and then we have to slice up our lives into different pieces and then to properly proportion different things to those elements, right? So it's like, this isn't everything in life. This is just indicative of the kinds of things that we can have, like fun, family, finances, food, clothing, etc. And so you're like, all right, well, I know I shouldn't focus that much on clothing. I fail at that one. You guys shouldn't focus that much on clothing, we need to whittle this little slice of the pie down, or I need to focus more on managing my finances, so whittle this one bigger. And then, when we come to church on Sundays, and someone like me is, focus on God, focus on God, focus on God, then what we think we have to do is we have to make the God part of the pie bigger, right? And so we siphon off, we put everything about God into one slice of the proverbial pie, and so we make it bigger. That's where our prayer time is. That's where our worship time is. That's where we come to church on Sundays. And then the rest of our lives, we spend doing the other things that we have to do. I think this is a much better way, not perfect, but I think this is a much better way to put it. You, this is, visual representations always are limited, but let's just say for the sake of making the point, we have to make our entire lives about God. Everything. Your finances, your work, your family, and my list that I keep going over here. 
everything is about God. God is not just one part of your life. Everything has to be seen as being imbued and given purpose by the Father. And if it feels and seems like something is not being purposed by the Father, then what do you do? You ruthlessly eliminate it. You kick it out. You abandon it. You say, this thing is not for me. And so, you have to, so what, what I started to do, I literally took this and I, and I began to kind of to, to like put in, all right, what energy am I putting towards this? What energy am I putting towards cultivating my relationship with my wife? Uh, and what energy am I putting towards my family? What energy am I putting towards clothing? All these kinds of things to see how we should, we should uh, uh, what, what kind of energy I should be putting into each of these when everything is about God. Everything. So what did I start to do? I started to think about how I was uh, uh, purchasing clothes, how I was using like social media or watching TV or because everything was seen through the lens of everything I have is God's. What we've done societally, and I don't have a lot of time to go through this, and guess what? You probably don't really want to hear about it too much. However, it'll help make sense of this. What we did in the Enlightenment, you know, a few hundred years ago here, is what academics and philosophers and thinkers did, is they, 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 they gave us a dualistic look at the world to where when we experience or think about God, it's like kicked out over here to a spiritual realm. And then the world is left apart to where we have the natural realm too. So you hear people talk a lot about the spiritual and the natural. Everyone with me? That's how we think about it. The reality is, is that's not the worldview of the Bible. And we misinterpret the Bible a lot because we're post-enlightenment. That's how we see the world. The Bible, how it sees it, is that the physical world that we have here is supposed to be fully encompassed and meshed with the spiritual world. And so as we make God the center of our lives, the simple focus of our lives, we're bringing God into every single portion of our being. And as we bring God into every single portion of our being, we can be, begin to see what is on the fringe, what finds itself on the outside, what's distracting me from focusing on God. When I'm doing this thing, I don't feel like God's a part of that thing. Let me think and pray about this. Do I have to limit the scope of this little slice of pie. So I think that we can look at how Jesus did this, how Jesus got rid of the distractions and he, he, he focused more on uh, the future, the vision that the Father had for him. There's a famous story of uh, Jesus' tempting in the wilderness in the book of Matthew. And uh, Jesus' ministry had just been launched, he'd just been baptized, kind of the future had just been set out for him, his calling had been given to him. And the first thing he does is he goes out for 40 days and fasts in the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days in the wilderness, and while he's doing so, he gets tempted by the evil one, evil spiritual force, by Satan. And this is how it reads. Then Jesus is what was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I would say so. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. That's the first temptation for him to turn the stones to bread, even though he's supposed to be fasting. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. 
If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's the second temptation. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. That's the third temptation. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. We see a lot in this short passage that I can't get into. Uh, But I want to point out two major purposes in this. The first one is that what Jesus is doing is he is mirroring or paralleling the Israelites' experience in the wilderness after they left slavery. And they were on their way to the promised land to fulfill the purposes of God. So the Jewish people, uh, as we see in the Old Testament, were specially selected by God to be the people through whom he would go about his process to redeem and save the world. However, there is a tradition, just as we do today, of failing at that, at getting distracted. And so what happened to the Jewish people when they, were in the, when they were in the wilderness, the Israelites, is that they constantly got distracted. So God saves them. He frees them from slavery. And they're on their way to the promised land. And then guess what happens? They get hungry and upset at God. And then God provides them with heavenly divine food. And then they get bored with that kind of food because that's all what they had. And they say that they want to go back into slavery because they were too comfortable out in the wilderness going and chasing after the God dream that was given to them. So what happens here is the Jewish people are having this trouble of achieving the destiny, the future that God has for them in the promised land that will bless the rest of the world. And so where they failed in saving the world, Jesus is coming and saying that I am the true Israel. I am the one who will withstand the distractions and temptations of the world and of the limitations of humanness. I will, in my limitation, I will represent humanity as the true man, as the true savior. What Israel could not do, I can do. I can bring us to the metaphorical promised land. I can bring us to the future that God has for us. And so what this passage does is it shows us Jesus as the true Messiah, the one who can overcome the temptation of the world when none of us were able to prior. And then what it also does uh, in more of a, more of a specific way, as, as Craig Keener, the New Testament scholar, says, he says that, this passage, that, that Satan ultimately in this passage is seeking to redefine Jesus' call. By appealing to various culturally prevalent models of power to suggest how Jesus should use his God-given power. See, Jesus had a calling given to him by the Father. He had a future set out for him. And along this path, Satan tries to come, evil tries to come, and to redefine his calling and to redirect him. See, this is what happens. There are three primary things that, that Jesus was, was, was tempted with. Provision like food, basic needs. And then there's what I would kind of categorize as, a, as like a, a pridefulness of being able to manipulate God to where he's saying, well, I'm gonna jump off the cliff. I'm gonna force you to save me. 
He's manipulating God. There's, there's, a, there's a status before God of, of being able to take control. And then third, there's power for him to be able to, to take the throne. What's incredible about, about this story and about what God does in all of our lives is that when God tells us to give up everything, as I said, we have to realize that as we give up everything, we will gain everything. You see, the temptations of this world are mere shadows of the fulfillment that God actually wants to give to us in the future that he has for us. What this world has to offer are just small visions. Distractions are just temporary fulfillments that keep us away from an infinite fulfillment that can only come from God. You see, with Jesus, God, the Father was going to provide him with all the things that he was tempted by. The Father was going to give him provision. In fact, he was going to be the bread of life. The Father was going to give him status before him of being the Son of God, the Messiah, right? So he was going to give him great power in that God was going to be working in and through him in miraculous ways. And he was going to give him power of being on the throne, ruling both the heavens and the earth. But what did the tempter want to do? To give him bread from this world rather than the eternal bread. Wanted to give him fake power, manipulative power, opposed to the power of God, the miraculous power of God. He wanted to give him the throne of the earthly kingdoms instead of the thrones of the heaven and the earths. See, in all of our lives, God has an incredible future set out for us. And when we get tempted by distractions, we're being offered mere shadows of what God has to offer us both now and for eternity. We have to keep our minds on the calling and not let our calling be thwarted by the distractions that the world has to offer us. So I'm going to talk about some practical ways that we can begin to do this. I hope are practical. So what I've hoped that has kind of happened so far um, is that there's, there's, we, we begin to think this sort of way to cultivate a desire of simplicity, of focus, a focus on God alone and let everything else come from that focus. But then we have to take some steps, I think, to begin, to, 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 to begin the practice of an outward simplicity. More Marie Kondo, if you guys are familiar with her. You have to put all of your things. We have bins that you can borrow out in the back. They're all colored, and you can put your shirts in them and then hide them in your closet. That's what this is all about. No, although Marie Kondo is pretty sweet. Okay, so our first practical step today. I believe that we must clarify the vision that God has for us or figure out for our life what God's business is. And we have to see how everything does or does not fit into that goal. So how can we do this? How can we see more of what God's business is? Well, one, it comes through other spiritual disciplines like praying and fasting like Jesus did and of seeing what God has for us and to hold that calling in mind and don't let anything else get us off track. And um, uh, we can also see what God's business is by looking at scripture, right? Values like faith, hope, and love. If you aren't getting enough sleep at night, very practical right here. If you aren't getting enough sleep at night, and if you get six hours instead of eight hours, you might be a little bit more irritable. And guess what? When you wake up the next day, you aren't loving people. And you're spending those two extra hours at night watching TV or a movie or on your phone or reading or doing something else. 
so that you're losing sleep and unable to love people well because you're rested. Guess what? Ruthlessly eliminate whatever it is that night that's keeping you up. Get how simple that can be? God has a vision for you to love people. What do you need to do physically to put yourself in a place to love people more? What are the, the, the little things that can help you to, to get rid of, 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 of the distractions that the world has to offer you to put you in a place to seek after the calling God has for you? So we have to clarify what that vision is. A key way to do this is through the practice of solitude. Sometimes we have to go for extensive periods of time or, uh, uh, or maybe just for a day to spend an hour. Sometimes like, right into your, your, your calendar, one day this month or one day, you know, a quarter or something like that to just spend in silence without other people and just to, to limit the noise so that you can focus on God and clarify your vision and see what those things are around you that are constantly pressing in and distracting you and distracting you and distracting you. And then once we do that, once we clarify the vision, we have solitude to help us to see what those things are and, and, and cultivate our relationship with God and see him better. Then I believe that we enter into this uh, uh, more of an ability to eliminate the distractions that are outwardly in our life. Do you have to purge your closet because you get distracted by online shopping or something like that? My bad. Do you have to sell your TV? Do you have to get rid of all your possessions? That sounds extreme, but when it comes to receiving the eternal life of Jesus Christ, that's a very minor thing. That's still hard to say. But ultimately, there's something of the greatest and eternal importance. And we have to figure out whatever it is, as we create silence in our life and ask God, what are the things that you need me to get rid of? And I am going to get rid of them no matter what it is. Me and Amanda, my wife, we talk about, do we just need to get rid of our TV? Because sometimes we spend too much time on it. I just started doing something really important with one of my friends. Because I was sick of like just feeling always all over the place and not simply focused on God. Very simple, is that we started sending screenshots of our phones every night and every morning of what time we're going to sleep and what time we're waking up. Because I was wasting my time at night and then I didn't have time to pray in the morning because I needed to wake up later because I was too tired. So now he rips me if I'm waking up late and he's saying, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And we keep each other accountable. I take a screenshot as well every night and I send him a picture of, of the screen time for my day. You guys know what that is on iPhones? You can click in, see how much time you spent in the day, how many times you pick up and look at your phone, how much time you spent in each app, so that I can only spend a certain amount of time a day. I cannot tell you how ridiculously difficult it was to only spend an hour on my phone a day. A whole hour. Which shows how distracted. And now I sit in my house and I'm like fidgeting because I can't look at my phone. But guess what? How crazy is it? that the little things and cares and desires of the world can so distract us from having a silence and simple focus on the things of God. What are the little things that you do? Make a decision today. Figure out what it is today that you need to do to eliminate everything that is not of God and only focus on the things that are of God. Make all of your business about God's business. You know my